Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast. Happy New Year! And we got a brand new season coming right at you. This is episode 23, and we're going to start things big talking about how to form a biblical perspective on mission. Let's do this! Today we have a very special episode and we get the chance to sit down with a very special guest, Chris Wright, pastor, renowned author and speaker, Old Testament scholar and leading missiologist, and also the International Ministry Director of Langham Partnership. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah. Yes, I would say we are very indebted to you for a lot of your writings and you've contributed to this conversation even before it became the missional movement. and. It's been great to see what you have been observing and what you've been writing about over the last uh, number of decades, whether it's been through your commentaries or books on the mission of God or how we are growing in our life of Christ. We are very thankful for you. Thank you. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I I think one of the things that I've always appreciated is you always bring it back to biblical roots and, and how scripture shapes your understanding of mission. So I think the first question that we'll open it up is like in your experience, in your walk with Christ, in ministry, because you've been a pastor yourself, and in your studies, could you share a little bit about your journey of how the mission of God has been formed mm-hmm. over the years? And you can share from an academic sense or from a personal sense. Thank you. Yeah, well, I can certainly start with the personal sense. I grew up in a, in a missionary home, and the accent, just in case people are wondering, is from Northern Ireland. That's what I... <laughs> Born and brought up in Belfast, but my my parents had been missionaries uh, before I was born in Brazil. Uh, And so I grew up with a kind of in-my-blood understanding that uh, if you're a Christian, then it had something to do with mission, that that there was nothing extraordinary about missionaries. It was just that they were people who did what God wanted them to do and went where God wanted them to go. Mm -hmm. And I suppose from a very early age, I had that assumption that that was the normal Christian life. Um, it wasn't therefore that I felt I've got to go and be a missionary, but it certainly meant that I knew the quotes of the missionary verses of the Bible and the importance of the Great Commission and all of that. But it wasn't until much later, uh, after studying theology in Cambridge, um, and then um, teaching for a while and being a pastor, as you said, for some years, that I ended up teaching at a, a Bible college in, in England called All Nations Christian College. Right. Which is a place uh, training cross cultural missionaries, um, mostly professional young people, average age 29, 30 or thereabouts and older, uh, who were already graduates in some profession or another, you know, engineering or teaching or medical or whatever, but who were going into cross cultural mission. And I was there to teach the Bible because my PhD was in Old Testament. Mm. So I was being, in a sense, forced to think um, what does it mean to teach the book of Isaiah or Exodus or whatever it was? from the perspective and for the sake of people who are going out into cross-cultural mission. It makes you ask different questions, Mm. um, ask different questions of the Bible text, Mm -hmm. and it allows the Bible text to ask questions of mission. So that's really where it began, and that was in the 1980s. And then I went out as a missionary to India, teaching Old Testament uh, in a seminary there. And again, it was the interaction of thinking through and teaching the Old Testament with men and women 
all of whom would be engaged in ministry in the Indian context with the ambient polytheism and Hinduism that was sure. there. So you're helping them to think about that. And then I came back to Britain and met up with some other people uh, who were uh, also looking at the issue of how do we read the Bible from the perspective of mission. Mm. Um, this was in the days even before the phrase missional hermeneutics had been invented, I think. <laughs> um, but I suppose it was what we were doing, uh, trying to read the Bible from a, a mission perspective. Uh, so that's what eventually led to writing the books that I have on that subject, uh, The Mission of God, published by IVP, and then later The Mission of God's People, written mm-hmm. by, um, or published by Zondervan. Mm. So that's very briefly the the, uh, the personal background to it. Yeah. Right. I have a question just, just about that. And I guess it's a loaded question, but the, why do you think the modern church, the modern Western church in particular, I guess, doesn't or has not in historically read scripture through the mm. lens of mission? It's a good question, Shu. I think partly because of the legacy of Christendom. That's to say, uh, when the church in Europe became basically a continental wide church, which was almost identical to state citizenship, Mission, in a sense, went out the window because, you know, this is where the Christian world is and out there are the enemies. And so theology developed, the classical theology within both the medieval tradition and then the Reformed tradition, at least we're talking about the Protestant church, developed within a Christendom context in which theology took the shape of, you know, the classic disciplines of biblical studies, Old Testament, New Testament, systematic theology, historical theology, church history, and so on. And the idea that somehow the church's mission to the world should govern how we do our theology and read the scriptures was really just kind of not there. Theology was an independent discipline within the academy, in the universities or in the seminaries or in the monasteries or wherever. Um, And it wasn't really until in the Protestant tradition, because the Roman Catholics were far ahead of this in in the, the Jesuit missions and so on, but in the Protestant tradition, from the uh, 18th century onwards, or the late 18th century and through the 19th century, that Protestant mission began to have to think theologically about what they were doing Mm. um, in terms of motivation, which then led to going back to the Bible, you know, rediscovering the Great Commission, as it was called. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that energizes cross-cultural mission. What has then begun to happen, thankfully now, is I think the churches are beginning to recognize, yeah, well, it isn't that we separate what the church does here in the West and then we have some Bible verses which tell us to go and preach the gospel somewhere else, but rather the church itself exists for the sake of God's mission. Mm. Uh, and if the church exists for the mission of God, then the church needs to do its theology from the Bible in order to facilitate our participation in the mission of God. And so therefore, biblical study, theological study becomes intrinsically missional it's for a purpose it's in order to serve the church's mission Mm. i think you touch upon it a little bit there where it's not just something that the church does it is part of the identity of the church it is not just the church's mission but god's mission in which the church participates in and that's that's a huge thing that's a big Mm. shift i I didn't learn about any of that until Mm. i went to seminary and even then, I'm still continuing to unpack what it means. Mm. But growing up, I never heard about that mm. at all in the church. Yeah. And that's partly, of course, because the church became an institution. It became part of the public sphere. It became part of civil society. You know, the church is the church. It just right. exists for its own sake. And I think thinking it through biblically, 
I wouldn't want to say that mission is the essence of the church. I would want to say it is during the course of the history of the fallen world. The the eternal purpose of the church is to be the bride of Christ. The the eternal reality of being the people of God is to be those whom will love and worship the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. Mm. Um, when the redemptive element of mission will be passed, I mean, in the new creation, um, they're not going to be evangelists, or if there are, they're going to be very thin pickings, you know. <laughs> um, but in the new creation, there will be mission in the broader sense that we will have a purpose. There will be a purposefulness about human existence. Mm. And, and so that throws you right back to creation. God created the human race and made in his own image with an intentionality that we human beings would be the kings and priests of creation, exercising God's rule within creation and serving God by caring for his temple, namely creation. So there is a human mission in creation, which I think will be recovered and restored in the new creation. But because of sin and fallenness, Mm. um, the world is broken and shattered and fractured at a creational level and at social level and at personal level. And into that broken, fallen world, God calls into existence a people. He creates through Abraham, he creates a people. Mm -hmm. And that people, he says, will be the means by which he will bring blessing to the rest of creation. So therefore, in that sense, the people of God ever since Abraham have had a mission. We've, we've had a reason for existence. Mm. And that reason for existence is to serve God's purposes of bringing the blessing of redemption to, to the nations and to serve creation. So in that sense, I'm prepared to say that the church, by its very identity and mission, if you ask who are we as a church and what are we here for, we say we are the people whom God has called into existence through our election in Abraham, through our redemption in Jesus, and through our commissioning and, and with the Holy Spirit mm. to be the people whom God will use for God's glory and God's purpose. So the church has a missional identity, a missional by nature, in the context of the present fallen history of the human race. Mm. Amen to that. Well, yeah. <laughs> Amen to and that. Perhaps even hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> even so. I think even we can so. wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I got to say, though, a, a very unique voice that you bring to this conversation is considering the whole biblical narrative and especially how the mission of God is portrayed throughout the Old Testament at the same time. Most of the time, as you mentioned earlier, people will jump right to like Matthew 28, the Great Commission, or they'll look at the early church and start to kind of form their understanding of missions based on that. but. One thing that you have really brought to the conversation is really just considering the whole biblical narrative and with a focus mm -hmm. of the, on the Old Testament as well. Like, What drew you to examining the Old Testament in that way? What did you discover? And, and why do you think it's so important to consider the Old Testament when we think about missions? Mm. Great questions. A bit like the answer, my answer to your first question, how I got involved with Old Testament at an academic level was largely, I, you, know, you could say serendipitous or possibly providential if you <laughs> want to be more theological. Divine. Yeah, exactly. Um, when I finished my first graduation from Cambridge in, in 1969, I went back to Belfast, my home city, and the, the principal of the Belfast Bible College asked me if I would do some evening classes in, in the college. I was a high school teacher, but he asked me to do these evening classes. Uh, which I did, and one of them was on Christian ethics. Mm. And um, 
they asked if I would do that, and I said, okay. And I, I hadn't studied Christian ethics in my, theology, in my university course, but I was arrogant enough to think, well, I can mug it up, you know, and <laughs> read a few books and I got teach a few classes. Yeah. So, um, so I thought, right, I'll start with the Old Testament. Um, we'll look a bit at that, and then we'll do some New Testament, and then we'll think of the Apostle Paul, and then we'll go on to some modern application. All very simple. But I couldn't find any books on the topic of Old Testament ethics. It just didn't seem to be books that were touching that. So I was thinking of doing a PhD anyway at that time. And so I wrote to my undergraduate supervisor in theology to say, would he think that Old Testament ethics as a topic would make a good focus for a PhD dissertation? Cool. And he wrote back to say, yeah, he thought it probably would because nobody had written anything on it for 50 years in English, Hmm. which is true. The last book with that title was 1922, and this was now 1971 or two. So what Um, language was it in? That was English. Um, there was something had been written in German, uh, Das Ethikthel Amtel Testamentum, something like that. Uh, wow, German. your German's so good. <laughs> it isn't. Uh, in, 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 19, <laughs> in Somewhere in the 1950s. But basically, the, the discipline of Old Testament ethics as a topic did not really exist. So I went back to Cambridge to do my PhD in that field. And that's how I then started digging into the Old Testament theologically and ethically. And then my supervisor suggested that I look at economic ethics of the Old Testament, particularly focusing on land and wealth and family and all the stuff in the law and the Proverbs and the Prophets mm-hmm. about that aspect of ethics, you know, the ethics of economic behavior. So that's what I did my PhD in. So then, because of having got a PhD in Old Testament field, naturally then, when I finished my uh, pastoral work and everything, I got involved in teaching Old Testament in the seminary in India and then back at All Nations. But there was another kind of aha moment when I was in India, which led me to see the connection between Old Testament ethics and mission. Mm. And that was teaching Genesis. And uh, in Genesis, there's a place in Genesis chapter 18 where God has a meal with Abraham and Sarah, remember, on his way down to mm. bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, stops off for a meal with Abraham and Sarah, and in the process tells them they're going to have a son, um, renewing his promise to them that they would have a son and then when he's about to leave he's god says to himself shall i hide from abraham what i'm about to do sort of assumed answer no why because abraham will become a great and powerful nation and through him all nations on earth will be blessed which is a repetition of the promise to abraham Mm -hmm. in chapter 12 and then god says in genesis 18 verse 19 for i have chosen him so that he will teach his household after him to walk to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that I can bring about for him what I promised. And I thought, look, there's three clauses in that one verse with two so that's. There's election, I've chosen him, that's the foundation, God's election of Abraham, God called Abraham to himself. And then at the end of the verse, there's so that I can keep my promise, which is bringing blessing to the nations, that's mission. God's agenda mm-hmm. is to bring blessing to the nations. And in the middle comes this phrase, so that he will teach his people to walk in the way of the Lord and to do righteousness and justice. And that's ethics. So God is saying, I've chosen this man in order to create a people, and I've created this people for the sake of the nation's Mm. mission, but this people have got to be different from Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm. They have to actually be a people committed to the ways of the Lord, not the ways of Sodom. They've got to be committed to righteousness and justice, not oppression, injustice, and immorality and perversion. These have got to be people who will walk in my ways. So I suddenly looked at that and I thought, one sentence, three clauses, and it's got election, ethics, and mission, all in the one verse. Mm-hmm. And so that 
really then generated within me this desire to see how that works out through the rest of the Old Testament. And I believe it does in many other places, as you see in my book, The Mission of God, Mm. that uh, in Genesis, in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in the Psalms and so on, you see this constant theme uh, that the reason why God is calling and shaping Israel, giving them law, trying to make them what he wants them to be, is ultimately for the sake of what God wants to do for all the nations, not just for Israel. So the missional nature of Old Testament theology and ethics came to me really when I was living in India and then developed through my teaching at All Nations and and ever since. Wow. So that's the story. That's (laughs) awesome. Well, it isn't really awesome. Only only God is awesome. God is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But the ways he works and the way he leads us is quite awesome at times (laughs) as well. So I wanted to ask, you know, over the years, you've had a chance to speak to so many different people groups and ministries and at conferences from all over the world. How have you found peoples from different places engage with this paradigm of what the mission of God is Mm. and understand it and for them to internalize it? Well, all I can say is that I find that when you do open up the Bible to those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, if they're Christian believers, Mm -hmm. things happen, you know, and and people, oh gosh, I've never seen that before. And they begin to get it. It's hard to explain. I think, you know, maybe one of the reasons why so many people don't is because they they worship in churches where perhaps the Old Testament is never taught or preached on, or they've been to seminaries where everything is so dichotomized and, and fragmented. You know, you do your Old Testament critical studies, you do gospel studies, you look at the synoptic problem, uh, you decide which of the epistles really Paul wrote or didn't, uh, and you learn a bit <laughs> of church, a little bit church, church history, and it's all fragmented there's no integration sure um and to me the whole point about seeing the bible as one grand narrative with with this you know creation fall old testament promise centrality of the gospel mission of the church in acts and then you know the return of christ and the new creation to see it as that grand narrative is to help christian believers to know the story they're in Hmm. and so i whatever the culture is wherever you are you have to say to people, yes, you have to live in the world. You have to live in North America or in Africa. And so you cannot extract yourself out of the culture you're part of. Mm-hmm. But the question is, living in that world, what story are you living in? Are you just living by the narrative of that culture, which may or may not fit in any way with the Bible? I mean, the Western cultural narrative is the myth of human progress. You know, which has been there since the Enlightenment. That somehow we're making the world better and better and better, mm. a bit more education, a bit more peace studies, and so on. We can do it. You know, there's this arrogance of of the Western culture that somehow we've got the power to transform society. Um, and and so people are living as Christians, but they're living within that story, which doesn't really make much sense. The longer we go on, and you know, through two world wars and what's happening in the world today, that Western myth is wearing very thin. Hmm. Whereas the Bible teaches us a story which says, hey guys, this is God's wonderful creation, but it's radically fractured and fallen and sinful. So don't be surprised by the evil in the world, but rather recognize that God has intervened through the promises he made to Abraham, through his son Jesus, through the resurrection primarily, cross and resurrection. And ultimately only God will put it right, but God will put it right. So there is hope, but that hope for the world rests uh, in what we believe God will do through God's people and ultimately through Christ at his return. Not in our efforts to sort of 
build Jerusalem, as it were, on England's green and pleasant land or whatever the song <laughs> goes. Um, we aren't the saviors of the world. Only God is. Right. So helping people to recognize the importance of the Bible story and then living and participating in that story and saying, this is what gives my life significance, that I play a part in what God is doing and then let God look after the consequences. I think for our context, especially for our podcast, you know, what have you seen or what have you observed that has kind of come out of kind of those coming from an Asian background mm -hmm. or from a Canadian background? Like what is their story yeah. that they have been living in? How has God broken through and reshaped those stories and bringing people from that background and culture into his story? Well, I'd have to honestly say that I'm not really familiar enough with it to be able to comment, you know, from the inside or from mm -hmm. direct observation. But when, when I was asked last time I was here um, in the Toronto area and speaking in the Chinese churches, um, one of the questions I was asked to speak on is what does it mean to be a diaspora um, immigrant missional church? Mm, okay, yeah. And I took all of those three words and I said, you're just describing the people of God because in the Bible, a lot of the stories of the Bible are about migration from Abraham right through, you know, and even you come to the New Testament and Peter writes to those who are strangers and sojourners. That's his opening words. You know, sure, we yeah. are, in a sense, the experience of being marginal, of to some degree being alien, to some degree of being God's people on the move, is a very strongly biblical category. Um, so to be, and also to be ethnically diverse is part of what God created the church to be, mm -hmm. uh, and to be missional, of course, is what we're there for. So I sort of said, welcome to the club. You know, this is what, we're, <laughs> if, if, but the question is, can you discern it? And, and so I remember preaching on that occasion from Jeremiah 29, because that letter of, of Jeremiah to the exiles, where the Israelites had found themselves as, well, we could call them migrants in some sense. They, they were really prisoners of war. They'd been taken to Babylon, yeah. but they were outside their own culture. They were now living in a pagan land. And God says to them, settle down, live there, and pray for the city where God has put you, um, and seek the shalom, the welfare of that city. So God is saying to them, I've put you there, and it's not just by accident. You have a mission while you're there to be a blessing to the people around you, to, mm. to, to seek the welfare of that city. So I said to the Asian churches, I said, you know, you, some of you may have come to Canada for all sorts of reasons. Some will have come as economic migrants. Some have come to, for education. Some may have come as refugees right. or as asylum seekers. There's all sorts of human level reasons why people have migrated. But the question is, can you then ask the question, why has God brought it about that there is such a massively large Asian, particularly Chinese community in Toronto? Yeah. What is God doing? Why has God brought that about? Mm. And how do you then discern what it means to be a missional church, a missional pastor uh, of people who may feel very marginal, may feel very subcultural, et cetera, et cetera. But how can you think, how are you going to be a blessing, not just your own community, uh, but to the secular, pagan, you know, fallen community around you that you've mm. landed up in the middle of? That is a great question. Yeah. <laughs> that is really, really good. I, I don't know how to answer it. Yeah, uh, only only the Holy Spirit can help. Sure, those Asian pastors, maybe who are listening, to at least ask the question and then say, "Let God, you know, speak to us, show us how we can fulfill Jeremiah twenty nine verse seven hmm. in our context." Sometimes oh. it starts with the question. Mm -hmm. I'll go back to something that you said with that grand story of God running throughout Scripture. 
I, I think that's part of our issue that that we have not been able to articulate that, or or uh, we we'd settled for for more reductionistic stories. And I guess the question I would ask you is, and I guess this speaking from you know Chinese church or Asian church, if we haven't got that grander story there, maybe the story that we bought into as I guess evangelical churches, Chinese churches or or whatnot, just when I've done my studies on people understanding, well, tell tell me what is this grander story? Tell me what's the gospel? Most people would just tell you, oh, Jesus died for my sins. Mm-hmm. Becomes individualistic, becomes, mm-hmm. or, and we just mm-hmm. our our goal here is just to get people saved to go to yeah. heaven in the future sometime. Mm-hmm. But what are the steps that you think should be like? You explained it like we mm-hmm. should tell that grander narrative. But where would you kind of start? Well, um, I think you're absolutely right. People often mean by the gospel, just um, you've got a sin problem, Jesus can answer it, and then you can be forgiven and go to heaven when you die. And in the meantime, how you live now, well, be a little bit more honest, just, you know, be, live as a Christian. But basically, you're living, you're living for the end. You know, I've got, a, I've got a swipe card for heaven's door, as it were. And, and, and also, Golden ticket. Get, get out right. of hell card. And, and, and what that means is that people, in a sense, have damaged Bibles. They've actually got Bibles that, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 has dropped off and Revelation 21 and 22 have dropped off because they know about sin from the fall in Genesis 3 and they know about the day of judgment in, Gen- in Revelation 19 and they know about Jesus in the middle. Whereas the Bible doesn't start with sin and end with judgment. It begins with creation and ends with new creation. Yes. Mm. Um, and so that is why, it seems to me, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the Colossians who were citizens of Colossae, a Roman, uh, a Roman colony in Asia Minor, and to... to have loyalty to Jesus of Nazareth there meant that you were rejecting the idols, the statues, the gods, the temples of the great Roman power, including Emperor Caesar. And if you did that, it was costly. If you, if you were if you were going to um, refuse to burn incense to and say Caesar is Lord, uh, you would suffer. You might suffer uh, civil penalties. You might be excluded from the business skills. You could lose your livelihood. In some circumstances, you could lose your life. Uh, so being a Christian there was not a comfortable option. It mm. was actually a radically dangerous thing to do. And how does Paul encourage those Christians to see their place? He points out to them in, in Colossians 1 that you've now come to be transferred into the kingdom of Christ and of, of his light. And then he says, and I'll tell you who Jesus is, all things in heaven and earth. And he says that five times, all things comes five times. He's talking about the whole creation. So he starts with the creation story. The cosmos, all things created in form by Christ, held together by Christ. Then he comes to the church because this is the body of Christ. These are the people who are in Christ. Uh, and, and, and then he goes back to creation. All things are reconciled to God through the blood of his cross. And then he says, oh, and you also get to be part of this when you believe mm, the gospel. Yeah. And uh, this will be your inheritance in what God has done. Now, it seems to me that there Paul almost precisely reverses the order in which we tend to present the gospel. Because we, as I said earlier, we tend to say, you, brother, you're a sinner, you need to be saved, uh, and uh, if you believe Jesus, you can go to heaven when you die. Meanwhile, there's a few of us here who've done the same thing, and we're called the church, and we get together, and we have fellowship, and you need to join the church in order to have fellowship and to strengthen you uh, so that you can stay together until we all get to heaven. Oh, and there's a world out there, and well, you've got to earn a living, so you better get out and you know have a job, and then <laughs> you can help to pay the pastor and so on. But, it's the narrative. But we don't know much else about yeah. the world, except that it's just there until it all gets burnt up and destroyed at the end. Anyway, <laughs> so it's individual church creation, if at all. Whereas Paul is exactly the other way around. He says there is a big story. Mm. God has acted in Christ to redeem the whole of creation. 
He has created a population for that new creation because it's got like the earth itself's got to have people, and the population of that new creation is his church, his people. And hey, you can be part of that big story, and and so respond to that at an individual level in order to plug yourself in to God's big agenda. And to me, that's a much more exciting uh, way to actually present the good news mm. uh, because it affirms the earth, it affirms creation, it affirms the value and the worth of society and marriage and family and food and drink and business and agriculture and everything. These are all good things which have been perverted and spoiled and become oppressive, but God is going to redeem all that is good of creation, not just chuck it all in the bin. That's good. That is so good. And it's mm. it's, it's awesome how you just said all of that without even saying the word mission. But that was very much a description of what the mission of God is, but of course, right? But that's because I believe that those New Testament documents like Colossians and those other ones that Paul wrote were fundamentally emerged out of mission. They sure. are, they are yes. missional in intention rather than just missional by implication. Yeah. Maybe just a quick question on creation care. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that I think a lot of people that I know don't see that as part of missions work. And I know that before when we were downstairs, you were... Mm. You had alluded to like Arosha, which is an organization that works with creation care. Mm-hmm. So how, how would you kind of help paint that missional brushstroke? I would say read my book, The Mission of God's People. And, uh, <laughs> and there's a couple of old chapters. That's good plug right there. there. Yeah, yes. yes. In a whole lot of ways. First of all, just to remind ourselves that we are part of God's creation. We are creatures. Uh, we were made to be in the image of God, but we are part of the creation that God said was good. And he put us into creation with a creational deliberate mandate to exercise what could be called kingship and priesthood, to exercise godly rule and authority in creation, and also to care for and to keep and to use it. So um, our relationship to creation is intrinsic to our humanity. Uh, So therefore, um, it stands to reason that when God chooses to redeem those who are made in his image, made in his image for the purpose of ruling over and caring for creation, which is the way it is structured in Genesis 1 and 2, that that's the very purpose of imaging God. We are to be the reflection of God within creation and to reflect creation to God, like a kind of 45-degree mirror, you know. So if that is our purpose as human beings, when God redeems us as human beings, it's not in order to extract us out of creation, but to restore our proper role within it. And that would then lead to the eschatological viewpoint that the Scriptures tell us in the Old and New Testament that God's purposes for creation ultimately are restoration and redemption. Restoration and redemption through purging and judgment. In other words, just as this body is sinful and will corrupt and you know is subject to disease and decay, but I believe in the resurrection of the body. So therefore, if God re- redeems us through the reality of sin and death and the judgment of death, but redeems us for resurrection, similarly, he will redeem and restore creation. Paul says this explicitly in Romans 8. He will redeem creation, which is analogous to the resurrection of our body. He actually puts the resurrection of the body and the hope of creation side by side. So that even if the present world order as we know it and see it goes through what 2 Peter 3 describes as the fires of judgment, it will be a purging fire, just like the waters of the flood in the first part of the chapter where Peter says that the world was destroyed by water meaning the destruction of the ungodly, wicked society on the earth. So when he talks about the earth being destroyed by fire, he's talking about the purging. And then he adds, and so we will see a new heaven and a new earth 
not totally other, but heavens and earth restored to be what they were intended to be in the same way as our resurrection bodies will be what I was, what God wanted me to be, will be fully real in the resurrection. That's why I believe, therefore, that one, uh, all human beings, and therefore also all Christians, because when we became Christian, we didn't stop being human, though sometimes you wonder, (laughs) um, that we are called to participate in the creation mandate. We are called to work with God in the uh, enhancement and improvement and use and stewardship and management of all that God has built into the creation the use of resources and uh, mining and agriculture and engineering and architecture and art and music and all the ways in which human beings are part of creation. That's all good and godly. So there is a general calling for us to be in that. But I also think that just as some Christians are called to be doctors or teachers or nurses or parents or whatever, we have different callings which we can regard and connect to mission so we've always regarded education as a missional thing to do. You know, Christians have founded schools wherever they've gone, teaching literacy, always regarded healing and health of the human body as part of good missionary work. So God calls, I believe, some who are gifted and skilled and trained in biological science and you know, environmental science and so on to use those skills in ways that will be involved with creation in either conservation or habitat protection or scientific research and all of the other things, that that can be their vocation and their form of mission. And I think that's a a godly calling and a right and good thing to do. So that's why I'm a fan and a supporter and um, advocate for Arosha, uh, because I believe they're doing what they're doing, not trying to say everybody else has got to do this too, but saying this is a prophetic witness to the fact that we live in God's earth. And um, when they're asked, if they're ever asked, you know, why do you do this? Why are you into bird ringing and habitat protection? They'll say, well, because it's God's. The earth is the Lord's. Mm. And if if not even a sparrow falls from heaven without your heavenly father, as Jesus said, then how, not only how much more value are you, but surely then God must also value the sparrows. Right. There's a creational theology within the Bible, which is actually very strong and, and largely overlooked, by, sadly, by even by a lot of evangelicals who ought to know better. So just to wrap up our time today, thank you, Dr. Wright, for your time. It's been really great to learn from you. If you guys want to dive deeper into a lot of things that Dr. Wright has, has been talking about, check out his books. He's got so many great books in which to unpack and to kind of work through a lot of these things. The very final question is just an opinion question for you is we've benefited a lot from the the writers and those uh, who have been wrestling with what the missional movement is. We've noticed that a lot of them have come out of kind of the Western world, but who are some of the teachers or the practitioners that you have seen or heard from that you think would be really valuable for us to continue to understanding the greater mission of God? Well, in the Latin American context, some of this um, more integral forms of missional thinking were already being advocated by people like Rene Padilla, uh, in uh, in Argentina and Samuel Escobar, um, they're sort of they're now in their eighties. So you know, but they they were teaching this kind of thing. There certainly are people within uh, Africa and Asia. Athena Gorospe in the Philippines, for example, who's, who's who's very much into this. She teaches at ATS in Manila. But uh, the the organisation that I work for, the Langham Partnership, and mm-hmm. you can check that out simply with that word Langham dot org on the website and see what we do. We have more than 350 Langham scholars, as they're called, that is, men and women who have got their PhDs in theology and are now teaching around the global south in the majority world countries. And many of them are involved also in 
holistic integrated forms of ministry. Mm, great. Um, a brother called uh, Finney Philip, who's in India, for example. He's a Langham scholar and he's done a New Testament PhD in the West, but he's now heading up a seminary in Rajasthan in India. He's also generating income, microfinance, loaning to small farmers. Uh, he has started several primary schools for children, uh, but he also sends his students out on evangelistic um, treks among the local villages to do church planting. So there's a very integrated form of, of ministry and mission there that is, that is happening through, through what Finney Philip is doing. And he's also still a scholar because he's one of the editors for the South Asia Bible Commentary, which is a one-volume commentary on the whole Bible, written entirely by Indian, Sri Lankan, uh, Pakistani and Nepali scholars for that whole region. Ah, so there are good examples. We can learn a lot from the global church. Um, it's just that sadly... The Western Church often isn't listening. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Wright. And thank you. we'll thank include you. that link in our show notes as well. And thank you to all of our listeners. We really appreciate you guys. You guys have supported us and helped us have a really great first year. We're really excited for the different conversations and topics we're going to be going through this year. On our next main episode, we're going to be talking about the topic of family on mission with our friends Martin and Ruth Gent. Once again, if you haven't done so already, please remember to rate and review and subscribe to our podcast because that helps us get this conversation out there. We'd love to be able to engage the Canadian Asian landscape and to talk about how some of these topics are affecting us and how we can continue to forge forward participating in the mission of God. We'd love to hear from you. We've heard from so many of you already please contact us through Facebook or Twitter or through email. We love hearing from you guys. We've heard from so many of you guys already, and we've loved the feedback we've gotten from you. Please continue to reach out to us. Let us know what you think, and let us know how we're doing in engaging this conversation. You've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.